Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 233 of Forgotten Classics, the second part of Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. First, though, I do not have podcast highlights except from this podcast. Halloween is coming. Oh, spooky stories. And I have several I can recommend from past, well, I guess mostly Halloweens, but also just regular times at Forgotten Classics. I will put links to these in the show notes. The Lottery by Shirley Jackson, Night Drive by Murray Leinster, Beautiful People by Charles Beaumont, The Beckoning Fair One in Three Parts by Oliver Onions, and two novels, The Uninvited and The Unforeseen both by Dorothy McArdle. So if you're in the mood for more Halloween-y goodness, go check those out. Now, Rappuccini's daughter. When we left them, Giovanni had just met Beatrice, who wouldn't let him touch the beautiful purple flowers. They were poison, she said. They're fatal. And when she was running... Giovanni saw Dr. Rappuccini watching him from the shadows. So is he, as Professor Buglioni said, part of Dr. Rappuccini's experiment? And what is going on with Beatrice? Why does she only seem to flourish in a poisonous atmosphere? Well, today we will find out in the conclusion of Rappuccini's daughter. Come on, dive in and I'll meet you on the other side. Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Part 2 No sooner was Guasconti alone in his chamber than the image of Beatrice came back to his passionate musings, invested with all the witchery that had been gathering around it ever since his first glimpse of her, and now likewise imbued with a tender warmth of girlish womanhood. She was human. Her nature was endowed with all gentle and feminine qualities. She was worthiest to be worshipped. She was capable, surely on her part, of the height and heroism of love. Those tokens which he had hitherto considered as proofs of a frightful peculiarity in her physical and moral system were now either forgotten or by the subtle sophistry of passion, transmuted into a golden crown of enchantment, rendering Beatrice the more admirable, by so much as she was the more unique. Whatever had looked ugly was now beautiful, or if incapable of such a change, it stole away and hid itself among those shapeless half-ideas which throng the dim region beyond daylight of our perfect consciousness. Thus did Giovanni spend the night, nor fell asleep, until the dawn had begun to awake the sleeping flowers in Dr. Rappuccini's garden, whither his dreams doubtless led him. Up rose the sun in his due season, and flinging his beams upon the young man's eyelids awoke him to a sense of pain. When thoroughly aroused, he became sensible of a burning and tingling agony in his hand, in his right hand, the very hand which Beatrice had grasped in her own, 
when he was on the point of plucking one of the gem-like flowers. On the back of that hand, there was now a purple print, like that of four small fingers and the likeness of a slender thumb upon his wrist. Oh, how stubbornly does love, or even that cunning semblance of love which flourishes in the imagination but strikes no depth of root into the heart, how stubbornly does it hold its faith until the moment come when it is doomed to vanish into thin mist. Giovanni wrapped a handkerchief about his hand and wondered what evil thing had stung him and soon forgot his pain in reverie of Beatrice. After the first interview, a second was in the inevitable course of what we call fate. A third, a fourth, and a meeting with Beatrice in the garden was no longer an accident in Giovanni's daily life, but the whole space in which he might be said to live, for the anticipation and memory of that ecstatic hour made up the remainder. Nor was it otherwise with the daughter of Rappaccini. She watched for the youth's appearance and flew to his side with confidence as unreserved as if they had been playmates from early infancy, as if they were such playmates still. If, by any unwanted chance, he failed to come at the appointed moment, she stood beneath the window and sent up the rich sweetness of her tones to float around him in his chamber and echo and reverberate throughout his heart. Giovanni! Giovanni! Why tarriest thou? Come down! And down he hastened into that Eden of poisonous flowers. But with all this intimate familiarity, there was still a reserve in Beatrice's demeanor, so rigidly and invariably sustained, that the idea of infringing it scarcely occurred to his imagination. By all appreciable signs, they loved. They had looked love with eyes that conveyed the holy secret from the depths of one soul into the depths of the other, as if it were too sacred to be whispered by the way. They had even spoken love in those gushes of passion when their spirits darted forth in articulated breath, like tongues of long-hidden flame. And yet there had been no seal of lips, no clasp of hands, nor any slightest caress, such as love claims and hallows. He had never touched one of the gleaming ringlets of her hair. Her garment, so marked was the physical barrier between them, had never been waved against him by a breeze. On the few occasions when Giovanni had seemed tempted to overstep the limit, Beatrice grew so sad, so stern, and withal wore such a look of desolate separation, shuddering at itself, that not a spoken word was requisite to repel him. At such times he was startled at the horrible suspicions that rose monster-like out of the caverns of his heart and stared him in the face. His love grew thin and faint as the morning mist. His doubts alone had substance. But when Beatrice's face brightened again, after the momentary shadow, she was transformed at once from the mysterious, questionable being whom he had watched with so much awe and horror. She was now the beautiful and unsophisticated girl whom he felt that his spirit knew with a certainty beyond all other knowledge. A considerable time had now passed since Giovanni's last meeting with Baglioni. 
One morning, however, he was disagreeably surprised by a visit from the professor, whom he had scarcely thought of for whole weeks, and would willingly have forgotten still longer. Given up, as he had long been, to a pervading excitement, he could tolerate no companions, except upon condition of their perfect sympathy with his present state of feeling. Such sympathy was not to be expected from Professor Baglioni. The visitor chatted carelessly for a few moments about the gossip of the city and the university, and then took up another topic. "'I have been reading an old classic author lately,' said he, "'and met with a story that strangely interested me. "'Possibly you may remember it. "'It is of an Indian prince, "'who sent a beautiful woman as a present to Alexander the Great. "'She was as lovely as the dawn and as gorgeous as the sunset. "'But what especially distinguished her "'was a certain rich perfume in her breath, "'richer than a garden of Persian roses.' Alexander, as was natural to a youthful conqueror, fell in love at first sight with this magnificent stranger. But a certain sage physician, happening to be present, discovered a terrible secret in regard to her. And what was that? asked Giovanni, turning his eyes downward to avoid those of the professor. That this lovely woman, continued Baglioni with emphasis, had been nourished with poisons from her birth upward, until her whole nature was so imbued with them that she herself had become the deadliest poison in existence. Poison was her element of life. With that rich perfume of her breath, she blasted the very air. Her love would have been poison, her embrace, death. Is this not a marvelous tale? A childish fable answered Giovanni nervously, starting from his chair. I marvel how your worship finds time to read such nonsense among your graver studies. By the by, said the professor, looking uneasily about him, what singular fragrance is this in your apartment? Is it the perfume of your gloves? It is faint but delicious, and yet, after all, by no means agreeable. Were I to breathe it long, methinks it would make me ill. It is like the breath of a flower— "'But I see no flowers in the chamber.' "'Nor are there any,' replied Giovanni, "'who had turned pale as the professor spoke. "'Nor, I think, is there any fragrance "'except in your worship's imagination. "'Odors, being a sort of element "'combined of the sensual and the spiritual, "'are apt to deceive us in this manner. "'The recollection of a perfume, "'the bare idea of it, "'may easily be mistaken for a present reality.' "'Aye, but my sober imagination does not often play such tricks,' said Baglioni. "'And were I to fancy any kind of odor, it would be that of some vile apothecary drug, "'wherewith my fingers are likely enough to be imbued. "'Our worshipful friend Rappuccini, as I have heard, "'tinctures his medicaments with odors richer than those of Araby. Doubtless, likewise, the fair and learned Signora Beatrice would minister to her patients with draughts as sweet as a maiden's breath, but woe to him that sips them. Giovanni's face evinced many contending emotions. The tone in which the professor alluded to the pure and lovely daughter of Rappuccini was a torture to his soul. And yet... The intimation of a view of her character, opposite to his own, gave instantaneous distinctness to a thousand dim suspicions, 
which now grinned at him like so many demons. But he strove hard to quell them and to respond to Baglioni with a lover's perfect faith. Signor Professor, said he, you were my father's friend. Perchance, too, it is your purpose to act a friendly part toward his son. I would fain feel nothing toward you save respect and deference. But I pray you to observe, Signor, that there is one subject on which we must not speak. You know not the Signora Beatrice. You cannot therefore estimate the wrong, the blasphemy, I may even say, that is offered to her character by a light or injurious word. Giovanni, my poor Giovanni, answered the professor with a calm expression of pity. I know this wretched girl far better than yourself. You shall hear the truth in respect to the poisoner Rappaccini and his poisonous daughter. Yes, poisonous as she is beautiful. Listen, for even should you do violence to my gray hairs, it shall not silence me. That old fable of the Indian woman has become a truth by the deep and deadly science of Rappaccini and in the person of the lovely Beatrice. Giovanni groaned and hid his face. Her father, continued Baglioni, was not restrained by natural affection from offering up his child in this horrible manner as the victim of his insane zeal for science. For, let us do him justice, he is as true a man of science as ever distilled his own heart in an alembic. What then will be your fate? Beyond a doubt you are selected as the material of some new experiment. Perhaps the result is to be death. Perhaps a fate more awful still. Rappaccini, with what he calls the interest of science before his eyes, will hesitate at nothing. It is a dream, muttered Giovanni to himself. Surely it is a dream. But, resumed the professor, be of good cheer, son of my friend. It is not yet too late for the rescue. Possibly we may even succeed in bringing back this miserable child within the limits of ordinary nature from which her father's madness has estranged her. Behold this little silver vase. It was wrought by the hands of the renowned Benevuto Cellini and is well worthy to be a love gift to the fairest dame in Italy. But its contents are invaluable. One little sip of this antidote would have rendered the most virulent poisons of the Borgias innocuous. Doubt not that it will be as efficacious against those of Rappaccini. Bestow the vase and the precious liquid within it on your Beatrice, and hopefully await the result. Baglioni laid a small, exquisitely wrought silver vial on the table and withdrew leaving what he had said to produce its effect upon the young man's mind. "'We will thwart Rappaccini yet,' thought he, chuckling to himself as he descended the stairs. "'But let us confess the truth of him. He is a wonderful man, a wonderful man indeed, a vile empiric, however, in his practice, and therefore not to be tolerated by those who respect the good old rules of the medical profession.' Throughout Giovanni's whole acquaintance with Beatrice, he had occasionally, as we have said, been haunted by dark surmises as to her character. Yet so thoroughly had she made herself felt by him as a simple, natural, most affectionate and guileless creature, that the image now held up by Professor Baglioni 
looked as strange and incredible as if it were not in accordance with his own original conception. True, there were ugly recollections connected with his first glimpses of the beautiful girl. He could not quite forget the bouquet that withered in her grasp, and the insect that perished amid the sunny air by no ostensible agency save the fragrance of her breath. These incidents, however, dissolving in the pure light of her character, had no longer the efficacy of facts, but were acknowledged as mistaken fantasies, by whatever testimony of the senses they might appear to be substantiated. There is something truer and more real than what we can see with the eyes and touch with the finger. On such better evidence had Giovanni founded his confidence in Beatrice, though rather by the necessary force of her high attributes than by any deep and generous faith on his part. But now his spirit was incapable of sustaining itself at the height to which the early enthusiasm of passion had exalted it. He fell down, groveling among earthly doubts, and defiled therewith the pure whiteness of Beatrice's image. Not that he gave her up. He did but distrust he resolved to institute some decisive test that should satisfy him, once for all, whether there were those dreadful peculiarities in her physical nature which could not be supposed to exist without some corresponding monstrosity of soul. His eyes, gazing down afar, might have deceived him as to the lizard, the insect, and the flowers. But if he could witness at the distance of a few paces the sudden blight of one fresh and healthful flower in Beatrice's hand, there would be room for no further questions. With this idea, he hastened to the florists and purchased a bouquet that was still gemmed with morning dewdrops. It was now the customary hour of his daily interview with Beatrice. Before descending into the garden, Giovanni failed not to look at his figure in the mirror a vanity to be expected in a beautiful young man. Yet as displaying itself at that troubled and feverish moment, the token of a certain shallowness of feeling and insincerity of character. He did gaze, however, and said to himself that his features had never before possessed so rich a grace, nor his eyes such vivacity, nor his cheeks so warm a hue of superabundant life. At least, thought he, her poison has not yet insinuated itself into my system. I am no flower to perish in her grasp. With that thought, he turned his eyes on the bouquet, which he had never once laid aside from his hand. A thrill of indefinable horror shot through his frame on perceiving that those dewy flowers were already beginning to droop. They wore the aspect of things that had been fresh and lovely yesterday. Giovanni grew white as marble, and stood motionless before the mirror, staring at his own reflection there, as at the likeness of something frightful. He remembered Baglioni's remark about the fragrance that seemed to pervade the chamber. It must have been the poison in his breath. Then he shuddered, shuddered at himself. Recovering from his stupor, he began to watch with a curious eye a spider that was busily at work, hanging its web from the antique cornice of the apartment, crossing and recrossing the artful system of interwoven lines, as vigorous and active a spider as ever dangled from an old ceiling. 
Giovanni bent toward the insect and emitted a long, deep breath. The spider suddenly ceased its toil. The web vibrated with a tremor originating in the body of the small artisan. Again Giovanni sent forth a breath, deeper, longer, and imbued with a venomous feeling out of his heart. He knew not whether he were wicked or only desperate. The spider made a convulsive grip with his limbs and hung dead across the window. Accursed, accursed, muttered Giovanni, addressing himself. Hast thou grown so poisonous that this deadly insect perishes by thy breath? At that moment, a rich, sweet voice came floating up from the garden. Giovanni, Giovanni, it is past the hour. Why tarriest thou? Come down. Yes, muttered Giovanni again. She is the only being whom my breath may not slay. Would that it might. He rushed down, and in an instant was standing before the bright and loving eyes of Beatrice. A moment ago his wrath and despair had been so fierce that he could have desired nothing so much as to wither her by a glance. But with her actual presence there came influences which had too real an existence to be at once shaken off. Recollections of the delicate and benign power of her feminine nature, which had so often enveloped him in a religious calm. Recollections of many a holy and passionate outgush of her heart, when the pure fountain had been unsealed from its depths and made visible in its transparency to his mental eye. Recollections which, had Giovanni known how to estimate them, would have assured him that all this ugly mystery was but an earthly illusion, and that whatever mist of evil might seem to have gathered over her, the real Beatrice was a heavenly angel. Incapable as he was of such high faith, still her presence had not utterly lost its magic. Giovanni's rage was quelled into an aspect of sullen insensibility. Beatrice, with a quick spiritual sense, immediately felt that there was a gulf of blackness between them, which neither he nor she could pass. They walked on together, sad and silent, and came thus to the marble fountain and to its pool of water on the ground, in the midst of which there grew the shrub that bore gem-like blossoms. Giovanni was affrighted at the eager enjoyment, the appetite, as it were, with which he found himself inhaling the fragrance of the flowers. Beatrice, asked he abruptly, whence came this shrub? My father created it, answered she with simplicity. Created it? Created it? repeated Giovanni. What mean you, Beatrice? He is a man fearfully acquainted with the secrets of nature, replied Beatrice, and at the hour when I first drew breath, this plant sprang from the soil, the offspring of his science, of his intellect, while I was but his earthly child. Approach it not, continued she, observing with terror that Giovanni was drawing nearer to the shrub. It has qualities that you little dream of, but I, dearest Giovanni, I grew up and blossomed with the plant, and was nourished with its breath. It was my sister, and I loved it with a human affection. For, alas, hast thou not suspected it? There was an awful doom. Here Giovanni frowned so darkly upon her that Beatrice paused and trembled. 
but her faith in his tenderness reassured her and made her blush that she had doubted for an instant. There was an awful doom, she continued. The effect of my father's fatal love of science, which estranged me from all society of my kind, until heaven sent thee, dearest Giovanni. Oh, how lonely was thy poor Beatrice! Was it a hard doom? asked Giovanni, fixing his eyes upon her. Only of late have I known how hard it was, answered she tenderly. Oh, yes, but my heart was torpid and therefore quiet. Giovanni's rage broke forth from his sullen gloom like a lightning flash out of a dark cloud. A cursed one, cried he with venomous scorn and anger, and finding thy solitude wearisome, thou hast severed me likewise from all the warmth of life and enticed me into thy region of unspeakable horror. Giovanni, exclaimed Beatrice, turning her large bright eyes upon his face. The force of his words had not found its way into her mind. She was merely thunderstruck. Yes, poisonous thing, repeated Giovanni, beside himself with passion. Thou hast done it. Thou hast blasted me. Thou hast filled my veins with poison. Thou hast made me as hateful, as ugly, as loathsome and deadly a creature as thyself, a world's wonder of hideous monstrosity. Now... If our breath be happily as fatal to ourselves as to all others, let us join our lips in one kiss of unutterable hatred, and so die. What has befallen thee? murmured Beatrice with a low moan out of her heart. Holy Virgin, pity me, a poor heartbroken child. Thou, dost thou pray? cried Giovanni, still with the same fiendish scorn. Thy very prayers, as they come from thy lips, taint the atmosphere with death. Yes, yes, let us pray. Let us to church and dip our fingers in the holy water at the portal. They that come after us will perish as by a pestilence. Let us sign crosses in the air. It will be scattering curses abroad in the likeness of holy symbols. Giovanni, said Beatrice calmly, for her grief was beyond passion. Why dost thou join thyself with me in those terrible words? I, it is true, am the horrible thing thou namest me. But thou, what hast thou to do, save with one other shudder at my hideous misery, to go forth out of the garden and mingle with thy race and forget that there ever crawled on earth such a monster as poor Beatrice? Dost thou pretend ignorance? asked Giovanni, scowling upon her. Behold, this power have I gained from the pure daughter of Rappaccini. There was a swarm of summer insects floating through the air in search of the food promised by the flower odors of the fatal garden. They circled round Giovanni's head and were evidently attracted toward him by the same influence which had drawn them for an instant within the sphere of several of the shrubs. He sent forth a breath among them, and smiled bitterly at Beatrice as at least a score of the insects fell dead upon the ground. I see it, I see it, shrieked Beatrice. It is my father's fatal science. No, no, Giovanni, it was not I. Never, never. I dreamed only to love thee, 
and be with thee a little time, and so to let thee pass away, leaving but thine image in mine heart, for Giovanni, believe it. Though my body be nourished with poison, my spirit is God's creature, and craves love as its daily food. But my father, he has united us in this fearful sympathy. Yes, burn me, tread upon me, kill me. Oh, what is death after such words as thine? But it was not I, not for a world of bliss would I have done it. Giovanni's passion had exhausted itself in its outburst from his lips. There now came across him a sense, mournful and not without tenderness, of the intimate and peculiar relationship between Beatrice and himself. They stood, as it were, in an utter solitude, which would be made none the less solitary by the densest throng of human life. Ought not then the desert of humanity around them to press this insulated pair closer together? If they should be cruel to one another, who was there to be kind to them? Besides, thought Giovanni, might there not still be a hope of his returning within the limits of ordinary nature, and leading Beatrice, the redeemed Beatrice, by the hand? Oh, weak and selfish and unworthy spirit that could dream of an earthly union and earthly happiness as possible, after such deep love had been so bitterly wronged as was Beatrice's love by Giovanni's blighting words. No, no. There could be no such hope. She must pass heavily with that broken heart across the borders of time. She must bathe her hurts in some fount of paradise and forget her grief in the light of immortality and there be well. But Giovanni did not know it. Dear Beatrice, said he, approaching her, while she shrank away, as always, at his approach, but now with a different impulse, Dearest Beatrice, our fate is not yet so desperate. Behold, there is a medicine, potent, as a wise physician has assured me, and almost divine in its efficacy. It is composed of ingredients the most opposite to those by which thy awful father has brought this calamity upon thee and me. It is distilled of blessed herbs. Shall we not quaff it together and thus be purified from evil? Give it me said Beatrice, extending her hand to receive the little silver vial which Giovanni took from his bosom. She added with a peculiar emphasis, I will drink, but do thou await the result. She put Baglioni's antidote to her lips, and at the same time the figure of Rappaccini emerged from the portal and came slowly toward the marble fountain. As he drew near, the pale man of science seemed to gaze with a triumphant expression at the beautiful youth and maiden, as might an artist who should spend his life in achieving a picture or a group of statuary, and finally be satisfied with his success. He paused. His bent form grew erect with conscious power. He spread out his hand over them, in the attitude of a father imploring a blessing upon his children. But those were the same hands— that had thrown poison into the stream of their lives. Giovanni trembled. Beatrice shuddered very nervously and pressed her hand upon her heart. My daughter, said Rappaccini, thou art no longer lonely in the world. Pluck one of those precious gems from thy sister's shrub and bid thy bridegroom wear it in his bosom. It will not harm him now. 
Thy science and the sympathy between thee and him have so wrought within his system that he now stands apart from common men as thou dost, daughter of my pride and triumph, from ordinary women. Pass on, then, through the world, most dear to one another, and dreadful to all besides. My father, said Beatrice feebly, and still as she spoke, she kept her hand upon her heart. Wherefore didst thou inflict this miserable doom upon thy child? Miserable? exclaimed Rappaccini. What do you mean, you foolish girl? Dost thou deem it misery to be endowed with marvellous gifts against which no power nor strength could avail an enemy? Misery to be able to quell the mightiest with a breath? Misery to be as terrible as thou art beautiful? Wouldst thou then have preferred the condition of a weak woman, exposed to all evil and capable of none? I would fain have been loved, not feared murmured Beatrice, sinking down upon the ground. But it matters not now, I am going, father, where the evil which thou hast striven to mingle with my being will pass away like a dream, like the fragrance of these poisonous flowers which will no longer taint my breath among the flowers of Eden. Farewell, Giovanni. Thy words of hatred are like lead within my heart but they too will fall away as I ascend. Oh, was there not from the first more poison in thy nature than in mine? To Beatrice, so radically had her earthly part been wrought upon by Rappaccini's skill, as poison had been life, so the powerful antidote was death. And thus the poor victim of man's ingenuity and of thwarted nature and of the fatality that attends all such efforts of perverted wisdom, perished there, at the feet of her father and Giovanni. Just at that moment, Professor Pietro Baglioni looked forth from the window and called loudly in a tone mixed with horror to the thunder-stricken man of science, Rappaccini! Rappaccini! And this is the upshot of your experiment. Okay, the very first thing that comes to mind here is, now what's Giovanni going to do? He's as poisonous as Beatrice was. He has no one, <laughs> except Dr. Rappaccini. Is he going to drink that poison? Are they going to gradually try to restore him to the way he was? He's kind of stuck, and it's terrible. And poor Beatrice, as she pointed out, her nature was not nearly as awful as Giovanni's. The narrator kept pointing out how shallow he was, and wow, did he prove it. He didn't have a depth of love. All he could think of was himself. <sighs> it's going to be awfully lonely in that garden with just a purple flower for company. Of course, no one's as awful as Professor Rappaccini. He is just completely inhuman, or is it inhumane? I think it's both. He doesn't care about this person, and he certainly doesn't care about the second person, who he's lured in just to see if he can change him while he's an adult. The line that he says to Beatrice when he says, 
Would you have preferred to be a weak woman exposed to all evil and capable of none? This is his idea of power, to be able to inflict evil on other people. Okay. I was also thinking about how lonely Beatrice must have been. She talks about the plant being her sister. She was only hoping to love Giovanni for a little while. She knew he would leave her. And then all she has is that horrible father who doesn't seem to be the most loving fellow in the world. And as I thought about that, and as I also thought about this as a picture of temptation, and I'm speaking here from Giovanni's point of view because I'm thinking about the moment when Lisabetta says, oh, hey, there's a secret door. I can let you in. And he thinks, oh, is this Dr. Rappuccini setting this up? Mm. He doesn't care. He goes ahead. He knows he has to be careful of Beatrice, but once he meets her, he doesn't care. He goes ahead. And so he's making excuses. He's pushing things out of his mind. Later on, when he knows that what he saw with the insects and the lizard dying because of her breath and her presence has to be true, the flowers wilting, he says, oh, oh, you know, I just made that up. It's not really true. He's lying to himself again. And then when he finds out that his giving in to temptation and ignoring what's really true, oh, whoa, wait, what? Consequences for me? I'm now poisoned. I'm now cut off from the rest of the world. Oh, Beatrice, this is all your fault. Doesn't that sound like a familiar pattern? We all know that pattern because it's the common reaction to temptation and giving in. And oh, dang, I got myself in a terrible situation. I'm so angry. That may have all come up more easily to my mind because I have been rereading The Lord of the Rings pretty slowly and that's one of the things you see from the ring. It makes little suggestions. It kind of pushes your mind into oh very good rationalizations of why you should have the ring, what you would do with it that's so great. And it's only the strong-willed person who is able to kind of shut that down and turn away from it or let other things jar them out of this lie that they're leading themselves into. Well, actually, that the ring is leading them into. It's tempting them. So thinking about all that, I was proofing this and listening to the last section and suddenly realized Beatrice was essentially created by her father the way she was. She's a perversion of any actual creation of something good, but yet her soul is still good. She's lonely. Her father creates for her, essentially, her bridegroom. When she's dying, she talks about the fact that I'm going to wear my breath won't kill the flowers in that other Eden, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh! Hawthorne, you genius. No wonder people talk about this as a retelling of a creation story or the Garden of Eden, except it's telling it from the point of view, it seems to me, and please feel free to, you know, dive in and talk to me about this. But it seems to me that what he's pointing out is that when you are subverting science for your own purposes, that's a temptation that leads to all this happening. Yes, we see Giovanni giving in to temptation, but why is it even there in the first place? The serpent, Dr. Rappuccini, he's the one who set it all up. 
just because he wanted to see what would happen. Just because he thought it would be kind of cool to be able to strike someone down if they're mean to you. So he gives Beatrice that power. And in fact, that is what Hawthorne tells us at the end when he says, And thus the poor victim of man's ingenuity of thwarted nature and of the fatality that attends all such efforts of perverted wisdom perished there at the feet of her father and Giovanni. So she's the victim, but it's the misuse of science and research that led to that. And just to finish it off and make sure we get the point, there's Professor Baglioni looking out of the window, and his tone is not just horrified, it's also triumphant. So he is just as bad. His use of science wasn't necessarily to try to cure Beatrice. It was to try to poke Professor Rappaccini in the eye. He didn't stop and think it through. He was just thinking of what he wanted. Oh, man. Hawthorne, I think you're the greatest. What a great story. And uh, for everybody who disagrees with me, you know my email. You know where to find me. (laughs) Come on. Let's talk about it. What a great story, Ken. Our contact in Hawaii, thank you so much for pushing me to read this. You could hardly have a greater story for Halloween. Wow. So wonderful. And by the way, speaking of nature and all that, yes, there is a dog chewing a bone in the back of the room, and I hope it's not driving you crazy, because this was the only recording time I could get. So I managed to keep it away from the story. Anyway, I really would like to read Young Goodman Brown, also by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This is a much better known story of his, but I still love it anyway. And I think there are a lot of people who haven't heard it. It's much shorter than Rappuccini's Daughter. So I'm going to try to read that one and get it out before Halloween, which is uh, on a Thursday. So we might be able to do that. Yay! And I have a few more short stories I'd like to read. So we may just go on with the short stories for a while before I dive into November with Mrs. Appleyard and then maybe start a new book. We'll see. I'm still thinking about it. So if anybody has input on short stories they want, I'm thinking a few more of those tall tales told in taverns from fantasy and science fiction point of view. Very much like the tales of Mr. Joseph Jorgens that I read before. Anyway, I'm open to suggestion. Lay it on me. I did want to mention a couple of podcasts that sprang to mind in terms of doing Halloween stuff, specifically. Pseudopod, of course, is always scary. (laughs) But I did notice that a few weeks ago, they put out The Devil and Tom Walker, which is a Washington Irving story. So yes, it's horrifying, but it's horrifying in the old school way, not the chainsaws or, you know, anything else creepy way, which I always kind of have to watch out for with them. And, of course, Halloween Haunter is rapidly putting out episode after episode about various scary poems, ghost stories, and Halloween traditions. The Classic Tales podcast is also, they had an Amar James story. They have Carnegie Ghost Finder, one of his stories, which I love. And I want to read that whole book to you. But, you know, listen to B.J. Harrison because he's going to do it better than I would anyway. And it's not the whole thing. And I know there are some others I can't think of, but that's at least enough to get going on. 
The weather's gotten a little colder here, so it's truly feeling like Halloween, although if some leaves would change, I'd be very happy. The trees, however, don't really seem to care if I'm happy or not. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> and I'm just going to let nature take its own course after the little lesson that we just had from Rappuccini's daughter. <laughs> take your own sweet time. That is fine. And other than that, I've really got nothing. I hope you're having a great fall. And I hope you like this reading of Rappuccini's Daughter. Don't forget, it's coming up on the end of our podcast fundraising month, where if you like a podcast, give them a few bucks and let them know. And if you want to give me something, give me an iTunes review. I love those. And as always, we know I love having people to read to. I wouldn't have read Rappuccini's Daughter nearly as carefully as I did, and I read it a really long time ago. I'd forgotten that Giovanni becomes poisoned himself. That added a wrinkle I didn't even recall. And if I hadn't read it out loud, I certainly wouldn't have really paid attention to it and reread the story. So I appreciate you coming by, because that's what makes it fun. Have a great week, everyone. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.